0: Left Egypt on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people, and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud, so that people will hear me speaking with you, and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Make them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. And then we'll go across to chapter 20 verses 1 to 19 to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy Six days you shall labour and do all your work but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God on it you should not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maid servant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbour. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet, And saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. And then we'll go across to chapter 24, verses 1 to 12. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you, in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire. Clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commands I have written for their instruction.
1: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please bless us this morning, we pray, um, with a sense of your presence, but also through the prompting of your Spirit. May we hear you speak to us in a living, active way through your Word this morning, and may we see how this history and this era of Israel's history uh, ultimately uh, is about us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And may it move us to live lives uh, of obedient faithfulness to you uh, as we live out uh, grace uh, and our response to it. Amen. I was reading a website of a relationship guru uh, the other day. His name was Mr. Kevin A. Thompson. As far as I know, he's not a Christian, but he seems to affirm the institution of marriage, which is very good. Uh, He points out that a marriage relationship carries many benefits and privileges, Uh, companionship, uh, intimacy, uh, hanky-panky. He didn't use that term, but that's uh, my take on it. Uh, and many other things which flow out of it, uh, the bearing of children. But then he makes an observation of supreme importance. And I quote, he says this Relationships fail when an individual or couple tries to enjoy the benefits of the relationship whilst avoiding the responsibilities. He continues, it's true of a man who wants sex without commitment. It's true of a woman who wants financial security without financial discipline. A bit sexist, but never mind. Uh, It's true of couples who want peace without the courage to have difficult conversations. And he concludes, Everyone would take the benefits without the responsibilities if it were possible, but a healthy relationship cannot exist without both the benefits of the relationship must be intertwined with the responsibilities. There we have it. Now then, in Exodus, we have been seeing God developing His relationship with the people He has chosen. That is the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites. But if Israel is to know God, then He must first reveal Himself to them. And of course, that is what He's been doing in dramatic form. Uh, He has revealed a new name for himself, uh, Yahweh, the Lord. And he has given that name content and significance through his actions, through what he's done. Uh, He has proven himself to be the mighty judge and the mighty rescuer. Uh, Yahweh has defeated Pharaoh. Uh, He has liberated his people through a series of devastating plagues. But relationship comes with responsibilities. And by the time we get to Exodus chapter 19, the time has come to make those responsibilities clear. Now, let me briefly summarize what happens in the chapters intervening since last week, when we saw the actual uh, Exodus event, uh, and chapter 19. Uh, Pharaoh has a change of heart, even after having released the people and he pursues them, of course, uh, with his army to try and bring them back. He realizes he's made a big mistake, or so he thinks, uh, and he's lost his source of free labor. And so he goes after them, but of course, God devastates the Egyptian army. Uh, God provides a way for his people to escape through the Red Sea through a mighty wind, Uh, but when the Egyptians pursue the people through the sea, uh, God allows the waters to come back, and the entire Egyptian army is wiped out. Again, God demonstrates his power as the mighty Judge and the mighty Rescuer. And then the people are in the desert on the other side of the Red Sea, and then God goes with them. He leads them through a power, a pillar of cloud and fire through the desert. Uh, And He leads them eventually to Mount Sinai on the Arabian Peninsula, and I've got a map here. It's from one of my Scripture books for the kids, but it serves a good purpose. Uh, So God has brought the people out of Goshen where they uh, resided, uh, through the Red Sea. You can see there's no uh, bridge there. That is the miraculous crossing. And then thereafter, and it takes three months since leaving Egypt, to get down to the bottom of the Arabian Peninsula to Mount Sinai. So that is where we are. And it's now three months since the liberation. And events are about to move to a climactic crescendo. Because God is going to meet with His people, and He's going to come down to meet them in all His glory and awesome power. Now, in the landscape of Old Testament history, uh, metaphorically speaking, there are two mountains that stand tall, uh, the promises to Abraham and the giving of the law at Sinai. So what we're coming to here is a massive event in the Old Testament history. Now, as we have seen previously, the turning point in human and biblical history is God's covenant with Abraham. Uh, God, if you recall, makes promises which amount to a reversal of the fall. Uh, He makes a covenant with Abraham and his descendants after him. Uh, God's promise of a great people who will be His own people living in a luscious land under His blessing. And we've seen, haven't we, God progressively reveals His purposes and plans as biblical history unfolds. It's what we call progressive revelation. And now the time has come under God's hand for Him to reveal more detail as to His plans and His purposes. He's now going to make another covenant with Abraham's descendants. And this covenant doesn't overturn or negate the previous covenant with Abraham. Rather, it develops it further. It expands on it. It shows Israel what these promises mean for her moving forward. And as we have said in prior weeks, the promise which now moves center stage in Exodus is God's promise of relationship with him. But the question is this, what will this relationship be like? How will this relationship operate? Uh, What is Israel's part to play in this relationship with Yahweh? What does Yahweh require of Israel? Uh, God has rescued Israel from Egypt, but what has Israel been rescued for? What is her purpose? And so now God meets with Israel at Mount Sinai and makes a covenant with them through Moses. Now, the clever term for this is called, it's the Mosaic Covenant, because it's the covenant made through Moses. And this is, of course, when God gives His law, the Ten Commandments, to His people, the Mosaic Covenant. And what we're going to see is this. Israel is now going to learn further about firstly uh, its purposes, its vocation, Uh, secondly about its privileges, how great the blessings are of what God is promising them, but thirdly, importantly, also about their responsibilities. What a relationship with Yahweh requires of them. So uh, let's therefore dive into the detail of the narrative and track through it, and see and follow these dramatic events and see what happened. And we'll start with chapter 19, verse 3. Uh, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. And what then follows is a historical rehearsal of what God has done for them, uh, to bring them to this point. Uh, What God has formerly said He will do has now come to pass. It's what He has done. And at this point, God looks back and rehearses what He has done. Verse 4, "'You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself.' Uh, Do you see what he's talking about? Uh, The three events. Uh, You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt. In other words, the dramatic liberation. And how I carried you on eagles' wings. In other words, the trek in the three months since then through the wilderness, where God has protected them and provided for them. And now this third part of these dramatic events, where God has brought them to meet with Him. Uh, on Mount Sinai. But now, uh, what God has done transitions to what Israel must do and what they should be. Look at verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession although the whole world is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see, relationship with God comes with responsibilities. Did you notice there is a conditional clause in the contract? He said, now if you obey me fully and keep My covenant." See, they're not free to live any way they please. And yet this special relationship is special indeed. Out of all the nations of the world, they will be God's treasured possession. They will be a holy nation. Uh, We know, of course, what this term holiness means. It means being withdrawn from general use and made special for God. And that is what is going to be true of Israel. Uh, They are going to be, we're told, a kingdom of priests. Uh, Like priests, they will be a people set apart for God's service. Like priests, they will have free access to God's presence. Uh, we're not, we don't have time to look at it in Exodus, but what uh, follows in the chapters after this is the, God's instructions for the setting up of the tabernacle. It's like a portable temple, a tense temple. And this is the place where God's presence resides amongst His people. An incredible privilege for His people. And this is where God's people meet with Him. And like priests... Uh, they will act as God's representatives to the other nations. You see, it's only now that light is shed on that throwaway line in God's promises to Abraham. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God says this to Abraham, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In some way... Uh, not only will Abraham's descendants be blessed, but God will bless the nations of the world through them. And it's only now that we start to get a little bit more light on what that means. Uh, God's descend- Abraham's descendants will perform a priestly role of bringing other nations to God, and in, such, in so doing, they will be blessed. So that is what God says to Moses. And Moses hot it back down Mount Sinai to the people to report back all that has been said. Look at verse 7. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. And the people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. And so, with the people's acceptance of the covenant in principle, the main meeting can be scheduled. In three days' time, God will descend in all His glory on the mountain to present the covenant in full, and meanwhile the people need to prepare themselves for it. And so, God indeed appears to Moses on the mountain. Uh, God comes down in all His glory and awesome power, and the people tremble, and Moses is the mediator who acts on their behalf. And God conveys to Moses the terms of this new covenant with Israel, the Mosaic Covenant. And it's not a coincidence that what follows bears a remarkable resemblance to ancient treaties between a king... And a vassal state. And it sheds light, therefore, on the nature of the relationship between Yahweh and his people, the king and the vassal. Now, then, uh, it's interesting uh, and helpful at this point to provide you a little bit of uh, archaeological and historical lesson on the Hittite Empire and the treaties the Hittite Empire made. Uh, at the height of their power, uh, in 1400 BC, the Hittites had a vast empire which stretched across most of Asia. And as a result, uh, many people groups fell under the Hittite rule. And it was therefore common practice and indeed essential uh, for the relationship between the Hittite ruler and these people groups uh, to be regulated And this relationship was regulated by means of a treaty, a Hittite treaty. And much to the delight of archaeologists and historians since, uh, many of these treaties have survived through to this present day. And these Hittite treaties formed an important purpose. Uh, They defined the nature of the relationship between the Hittite king and the people under his rule. Uh, it defined the nature of the relationship and the responsibilities involved. You see, the vassal state, the people under the rule, uh, would pledge their allegiance to the Hittite ruler, and he in turn would protect them and ensure they lived in peace. Uh, archaeologists tell us that these Hittite treaties took a precise form of six fairly fixed components, and significantly, most of these components are present in the Mosaic Covenant. And the point that's being made is this. Israel is now in relationship with God. He is their king. Israel is what's called a theocracy, a nation-state living under the rule of God. But with relationship comes responsibilities. And to preserve and protect that relationship it is important that Israel understands her obligations. And that is what is now done in the Mosaic Covenant. And it takes the form of a Hittite treaty. So let me briefly tell you uh, what a Hittite treaty looked like uh, and how the Mosaic Covenant uh, dovetails with that. So in a Hittite treaty, there would be initially uh, a what's called a preamble, where the principal party, that is the king, would identify himself. And that is what we see in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, uh, God's opening words to Moses. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord. Of course, that is Yahweh, your God. That's there it there is, there's the preamble. Uh, the king identifies himself, I am the Lord, Yahweh. Uh, the next aspect of a Hittite treaty, uh, was a quick review of the preceding history of the relationship uh, which brought the parties to this point. And that is what God now does. Uh, Chapter 20, verse 2, God continues, so He is the Lord, Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Uh, The next component in the Hittite Treaty was details as to how the relationship was to continue thereafter. Uh, A call, of course, to mutual faithfulness to the conditions of the covenant. And it would then have specific stipulations and conditions. And that is what we see at the heart of what God relays through Moses, uh, God's law. Uh, These are, of course, what we call the Ten Commandments, literally the ten words, the Decalogue, Deca, ten, uh, Logos, words the Ten Commandments. And these represent uh, God's law for His people. And so there it is in the very heart of the covenant, uh, God's conditions for His people. Uh, The next aspect of a Hittite treaty was that the gods of both parties were invoked uh, to enable the parties uh, to actually keep the agreement. Of course, that's hardly appropriate in this case to invoke both gods because there's only one God. Uh, so, that aspect wasn't reflected in the Mosaic Covenants. But the final part of a Hittite treaty, the sixth part, was the one of blessings and curses. Uh, blessings would be stated for obedience, but curses would also be invoked for disobedience. Now, in the Mosaic Covenants, At this stage, in terms of what God says to Moses on the mountain, uh, most of what's emphasized are the blessings for obedience. But as we look at the subsequent history of Israel, the curses for disobedience are also emphasized. Uh, A millennia later, after God's meeting on Mount Sinai, the prophet Jeremiah would have these words for the Israelites of his day. Uh, Jeremiah. Chapter 11, verse 3, Uh, tell them that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Cursed is the man who does not obey the terms of this covenant, the terms I commanded your forefathers when I brought them out of Egypt, out of the iron-smelting furnace. I said, obey me and do everything I command you, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. So, there it is. You see, uh, the Mosaic Covenant takes the same form as one of these Hittite treaties. And what we then see in the events after that uh, is effectively uh, a ratification of this covenant, So, uh, Moses returns to the people with a covenant proposal, and the people accept it with readiness, uh, chapter 24, verse 3. When Moses went and told the people of the Lord's words and the laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. So, they agree. Uh, They want to put the ink on the paper. They want to sign the covenant to make it binding. And that is indeed what then happens. Uh, There is a ratification ceremony. It involves burnt offerings and the sacrifice of young bulls, verse 8. Moses then took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And then what would normally happen uh, once a covenant has been made is that the two parties would sit down and celebrate. Uh, They would have a meal together to reflect uh, the relationship they had together. They would have a party. And that is what then happens uh, on Mount Sinai. Look at chapter 24, verses 9 to 11, Uh, God calls up Moses and Aaron and the leadership body of Israel, and He has a party with them. It says this, Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abu and the 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. Under His feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise His hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate, and they drank. They had a party. They ate and they drank. So, uh, as we pull this together, uh, let's think now about the implications of the Mosaic Covenant. We're going to think first about the implications for Israel uh, before we think about the implications for us today. And the first implication is this. We must see law in the context of grace. You see, over the centuries that followed, misunderstandings concerning the purpose of God's law abounded. Uh, The proud human heart had a tendency to latch onto law as a means of self-salvation. Over the centuries that followed, many Jews became so focused on the law that they lost sight of grace. And it led many down the path of proud, self-righteous self-salvation. And such, of course, was the heart of many Pharisees that Jesus encountered in his day. But if they were to have only looked back at the original context of, into which God's law was given, they would have seen that it was clearly not a means of salvation. The people had already been saved from Egypt, they were already in relationship with God. Rather, the law provided the framework for people to respond to the salvation which God had won for them. The law was given in the context of grace that had already happened. You see, the law provided the means by which faith could express itself in obedience. Uh, The Lord showed what it looks like to live honoring God as the King. Uh, You'll be familiar with the fact that the Ten Commandments break down into two groups. Uh, The first four are all about the people's relationship with God, to honor Him, to love and worship only Him. And the last six of the Ten Commandments are all about people's relationship with other people, Uh, not lying to other people, not stealing, not envying, etc. Famously, Jesus would later boil down the Ten Commandments into two principles, love for God and love for others. You see, a relationship with God does bring staggering privileges Uh, not least access into His presence, as was the case for Israelites through the tabernacle. But relationship with God brings also responsibilities to live out His law. But observing God's law is far more than just a responsibility to be kept. It is actually the path of flourishing, You see, God's law codifies the wisdom of God. God's law reflects the moral order that God has stitched into His creation. Uh, To disregard God's law is to damage self and society. Uh, God's law shows how things work best in life. And if Israel were to live out God's law, their society would flourish and it would reflect the character and the wisdom of God. And in this way, Israel would be a kingdom of priests. Living out God's law would give their society a shape and a character that would be alluringly attractive to other nations. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6 says this, Observe them carefully, that is the the law, God's words, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. To live out God's law will cause other people to go, hey, that's different. There's incredible wisdom there and they will be drawn to it. So you see, the purpose of Israel was to show the world how God uh, calls people to live under His rule as the one true king. And in so doing, they were to draw others to live under that rule. So that was the implications of the Mosaic Covenant for Israel. What about the implications then for us today? Well, given our aim of tracing the salvation storyline of the Bible, we're trying to resist the natural urge to go to the New Testament too quickly. And yet some connections are just too significant to ignore. In Exodus chapter 19, uh, God reveals the purpose and the privileges of Israel. And yet we find the New Testament applying this very passage to you and me, if we trust in Christ. It's all about the church. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Although the whole earth is God's, those trusting in Christ are God's special people, His treasured possession. If we're trusting in Christ, we are a royal priesthood. We are set apart for God's service we mediate God's presence to the world. And relationship with God comes with responsibilities. We are called to live out the law of love for God and for others. And as we do, our lives will flourish, for it is the best way to live. And as we do, our lives will also shine. But we must also remember that God's law of love is given in the context of grace. It's our opportunity to respond in faithful obedience to God's rescue of us. And sadly, many people today focus on the law and lose sight of grace. Uh, The view, of course, is often expressed that a Christian is merely someone who keeps or at least tries to keep the Ten Commandments. And nothing could be further from the truth. So in conclusion, the question at this point in the Bible's unfolding storyline is this. How will Israel go? Uh, Will they honor the terms of the Mosaic Covenant? Or will they break it? Uh, Will they keep God's law? Or will they run roughshod over it? It seems that Israel has little understanding of her own sinfulness and the seriousness of disobeying God. Even during the three months' journey to Sinai, the people have refused to trust God, and instead they have grumbled and complained. Yet, when offered the terms of the covenant, they have accepted it with a rash hastiness. Uh, They respond, of course, with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. It is a perilous thing to break the law of God, for breach leads to judgment. And as we will see next week, no sooner has the dust from the chiseled tablet settled when we come to the incident of the golden calf. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your law. Uh, thank You for the law of love. Uh, thank You that it is given to us in a context of grace. It is not a means of salvation, but a response to salvation, the salvation You have already won for us through Christ and the cross. Thank You for Your law uh, that enables us and gives us the path to personal flourishing, it shows us the best way to live so that our lives and our society and our church can flourish. Help us, we pray, uh, to live out this law of love for you ever more deeply and for each other. And may that then also have that wonderful, ongoing, flowing effect of drawing others to you, the one true God, as they see the reality of your wisdom and your character lived out in our lives of love. And we pray this ultimately to your glory. Amen.